Whether it be in the New South Wales Ranges, Riverside and the Northern Territory, above treeline in New Zealand or Colorado, or in the tundra of Alaska, hunting camp is where the best stories are shared. Join me as I bring some of these stories to you, along with tips and techniques from some of the known and not so well known hunters of Australia and around the world. Well guys, welcome to another episode of Hunting Camp Done Under. I'm your host Craig Hales. Well, the deer rut is nearly here for us Aussies anyway. Um, just a couple of weeks and uh, we're going to hear those beautiful sounds in the in the Aussie bush. The fallow deer should be going and uh, the red deer certainly uh, should be firing up very shortly. So it looks like New South Wales has uh, got a little bit of rain in the areas that we need it and uh, hopefully that's going to make a... A better rut this year. Um, it was looking a little bit grim here a couple of weeks ago, so I, uh, I haven't spoke to any owners, property owners or anything yet, but um, just looking at the satellite and that over the last few days, it looks like we're, we've got a bit of rain, a bit of relief for them. So, you know, he's hoping that everything's looking up and, uh, you know, those farmers can uh, start putting some crops into that for this year. So, and it'll only help us, uh, you know, chasing the deer around as well. So, well, uh, today's episode uh, is, a, is a great one. I really, really enjoyed this one. Um, I learned a lot myself, actually. Uh, Ayn Doomstus, he's a young fella that uh, it's got a wealth of knowledge already. Um, I, can, I can only see him, you know, growing and, and doing big things uh, with the bow in hand. He, uh, his old man taught him well, him and his brother James. Um, you know, I, I, their passion for bow hunting is... is uh, you know, you can't help but uh, just get keen to get out in the hills after after talking to these guys. So, you know, he's, uh, Aiden speaks really, really well, um, and is uh, it was a pleasure to have on the on the on the podcast. And then, you know, we dive into some species specific stuff, and uh, you know, he breaks down sort of samba deer, uh, a bit of chittle deer, and the fallow as well. So, um, yeah, certainly a lot of learn a lot. And uh, for a samba rookie myself, I uh, I took plenty of notes. So. Um, and obviously, you know, at the end of this week, we're heading down to the Wild Deer Expo. Um, hope to see everyone there. I'll be running some podcasts out of the Oscut Broadhead booth. Um, I have to thank Nick for for his help and support there. He's uh, he's been kind enough to to share the booth with me, and um, you know, it's going to be it's going to be really enjoyable. Something a little bit different, and um, should be seeing plenty of face to face stuff. And um, and finally, put some. Some names to faces, and uh, you know that's what these expos are all about. So uh, if you see us down there, make sure we come up, and say good day. Um, you know, we're in for a yarn, and and hopefully after the expo, we'll catch up for a few beers and those kind of things as well. So, social media, I'd like to thank Arrowhead Magazine um, as the first sponsor for the podcast. Um, I can't thank Doug enough for his support. Um, the idea of that is is to bring you know both forms together, and uh, so we can get the you know the best content to you guys as listeners and and readers. So. Um, once again, I really thank Doug for his support there and um, and look forward to catching up with them guys down at the Expo as well. So anyway, guys, um, let's jump straight into this episode. Ain't Doomsters. Enjoy. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome to Hunting Camp Down Under. I've got a great guest with us today. He's, uh, he's a man that uh, gets around and, and knows how to take a critter or two. Ain't Doomsters, how are you? Very well, Craig. Thanks for having me on. No worries, buddy. I, uh, I believe I got you at uni. <laughs> yeah, just uh, making the most of free Wi-Fi and a good connection. So <laughs> Way to do it, Finished man. up for the day and uh, um, thought I'd stick around for a bit longer and have a chat. <laughs> uh, good stuff, mate. Well, hopefully um, you don't get locked in or something crazy like that. So No, <laughs> that's all right. I've got a swipe card and 24-hour zone, so it should be sweet. Beautiful, beautiful. Mates, you've... Um, 
well, you've recently sort of you gone to Queensland, haven't you? You you're doing uni up north now. You um you moved up to Victoria. How'd that come about? Purely just for uni um, or? Yeah, it's something I've kind of really wanted to do for a long time. Um, I mucked around with a bit of study in Victoria um, a few years back and did some environmental science. Um, and then a long kind of passion of mine has been animals, obviously. Um, and I really wanted to do something that would kind of complement. It's a weird kind of contrast. It, it's veterinary science. Um, so it contrasts a little bit with hunting, but it, at the same time, I just do have a deep appreciation for animals. Um, so yeah, recently got in up here and I've been made the switch from Victoria to Townsville, um, which has put me in a different kind of, um, hunting area, um, and work and living zone. So it's good. Really enjoying the change. Yeah. You definitely wouldn't sneeze at being in Townsville, mate, for hunting. That's for sure. No, that's it. Everything's pretty <laughs> close up here and it's tropical and there's spear fishing and hunting pretty much on my back doorstep. So it's beautiful. That's unreal. Mate, we'll jump into that in a little bit, but, um, you know, first things first, we'll, you know, if you want to give us your quick intro and, uh, you know, obviously you, you said about, um, you know, being at uni, but, you know, how'd you, how'd you grow up and how'd you spend your time growing up as a kid? You've always been into bow hunting or tell us a little bit about um, it. Yeah, well, since I can remember, I think from the age of four, um, dad, um, well, I'm a twin, um, so I've been fortunate to grow up with my best mate, James, um, and the two of us have pretty much been in each other's back pockets since we were little, um, always adventuring and doing all that type of stuff and then dad thought the best way to kind of burn some energy um was when we were about four years old to take us out with him um and he made the switch from rifle to bow hunting pretty early on um just before we were born um and then from there we kind of didn't really look back um we're always going out on weekends and after work and school and things like that um just watching and observing dad um and then yeah so we owe a lot to him obviously in the way we've been brought up um and all things outdoors. And then when we were about 12 years old, Dad finally um, made the call. He'd kind of seen us creeping close to pigs and goats and feral cats and rabbits and foxes and all those small kind of game enough um, and take plenty of pictures and things like that up close, like under 10 metres. Um, but he kind of decided that we'd be able to grab a bow and arrow and um, be able to go from there. So then it wasn't even hunting. It was just practising and target blocks and things like that for as long as I can remember it seemed and then finally we kind of got the tick of approval um and yeah he said all right let's go and do it let's make it happen and um yeah started off small with rabbits and things like that around the Victorian hills and then just worked our way through with foxes and um cats and feral goats feral pigs and then eventually um feels like only a couple of years ago um got onto deer but haven't really looked back um had plenty of opportunities been pretty privileged to travel around a lot of Australia, um, which has been really good. Um, so yeah, that's probably the backstory. Um, yeah. So when uh, you know, looking back now, obviously, yeah, old man put you, um, you know, put you through the test, you know, in, in good for for good reasons, and um, you know, obviously you learned from that. But what's the what's the one thing that sort of stands out to you to this day, you know, that your old boy taught you? Um, I think it's something, it's actually a combined thing. I think it's um, going to sound silly, but with Brad Smith, actually was a big mentor for me. Um, I remember emailing him after watching some of his videos. My dad was obviously there and gave us the practical side of things and took us out. But um, I think a lot of the education also came from Brad Smith, um, who's a, pretty much a balancing god, I think. Yeah, um, I agree. In terms of ethics and the way you should hunt and do everything. Um, he's up there on a pedestal for me. Um, but yeah, just watching his DVDs and kind of, I think the saying was 
like bow hunting and rifle hunting and all that type of stuff. Like it doesn't matter how you do it, but just getting in close, it's chalk and cheese and, um, yeah, getting in undetected to under 20 metres and being able to, you know, see animal feeding and doing that, all that type of stuff undisturbed and then, you know, be able to put an arrow in the right place and see the animal go down within metres um, is just, yeah, there's something about it. Um, and that's something my father and obviously through other people and watching like Brad, um, that's something they've implemented with me um, and that's really stuck. So um, I guess, yeah, shot placement and just having sharp broadheads and um, just bow hunting, so getting in really close to animals undetected. It's funny how the uh, it's the basic stuff that sticks to your mind, you know, the stuff that we probably take for granted a little bit, um, you know, is the one that I guess is, is stuck with you. Um, what age were you with, I guess, you and your brother, James, um, when, what age were you when you sort of stepped out on your own and, um, you know, really sort of took the bull by the horn, so to speak? Um, it's hard to say. I think um, we didn't really have too much access until we had properties around home in Victoria, um, but it wasn't until, because with mum and dad with a busy workload and things like that, and we've really only hunted um, until recently with like my father and my brother, um, or I have, sorry. Um, it was probably until I was about 18 um, when I could get got my license, worked, you know, and got some funds behind me and pretty much just said, you know, I'm not going to go out and party. I'm going to save my money, get up early and just spend the whole weekend out um, in the bush hunting. That's really what I wanted to do. Um, and then, you know, played sports and a few other things. And same thing, it was once the, the siren kind of ran, I'd chuck my footy boots away and just get straight out into the bush again. So I'd definitely say, I think it was more just when everything came a bit more accessible. Yep. Um, and yeah, I was able to do those things, but probably when we were around 13 or 14, things really started clicking and, um, yeah, we kind of, James and I were getting a bit of a taste for things and dad really just, you know, knew that he'd done his job and, um, let us go nuts, I think. And just, yeah, a lot of, he wouldn't stalk too much anymore. I think he was pretty selfless in that aspect, which now, like, I just, yeah, really have to thank him because I wouldn't be the hunter I am without his guidance and, yeah, basically just throwing away years for himself when he could have been doing all this hunting and giving it to my brother and I. Yeah, I think it sounds like, you know, he, he, he had probably done enough and was starting to live, I guess, you know, live his life through you guys and, and probably pretty proud of, well, especially where you guys have got to now. Um, you know, just even the last couple of years, me watching you, you boys, you know, social media and stuff, it's, it's amazing what you've achieved in such a short time. Yeah, well, that's it. That's It's funny because I actually, it's quite, um, there's a bit of irony. Like, I didn't really think there was a world out, like, I didn't realise how big the bounting world was until social media a few years ago. I think I picked up Instagram and, um, you know, got talking to blokes like Nick Morden who had a great product in Oscar Broadheads, um, Tony Gillahan, um, like, you see blokes like Adam Greentree who are just really good advocates of bounting in the sport, um, the dog, Doug Stojanovsky and Tony, um, blokes like yourself, I guess, and, um, yeah, you realise how many like-minded bounters are out there and then that's when kind of my bounting really just went crazy and I was doing a lot more travelling, a lot more talking to people. Um, you really realise how many similar like-minded people there are out there. Do you find there's a common denominator with everybody? Um, I think it's honestly just a pure love for the outdoors, um, a real passion for just adventure and all things, you know, bush. Um, but also the biggest thing that hits home with me is the people that I associate with have just got huge like um, standards in how they hunt. Um, it's not about necessarily going out and killing anything or killing the biggest thing. I personally don't measure any of my stuff that I shoot. Um, I know a lot of my mates don't. Um, it's more just, you know, getting out in the bush, 
um, they'd rather video an animal and let it grow and get there next year um, or see it again next time. Or Like for me personally, um, I love just carrying the camera around and if I see a deer and can video it, that's great. If, if I video a kookaburra eating a snake or something amazing like that, then that's my day almost. That's my hunting done for the day. Like it just, I yeah, I'm not sure. I think it's just a release. Um, and then the thing that's common between all of us, I think, is just ethics and morals and, you know, really wanting the best from the sport and for the animals we're hunting. So I guess respect, yeah, is probably the word. But um, yeah, if that answers your question. <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, you know, and that very well put, mate. That's, you know, it's a great answer. It, um, you know, it just shows, I guess, you know, the, the good thing is it shows you how you were brought up and, and, you know, credit to your old boy. He, um, you know, he certainly set you guys up well. So, and, um, and it, you know, you've looked at the, I guess, the right peers in, in, in the same, uh, in the same sentence. But, you know, I guess, you know, obviously coming to today's hunts, you're, you know, you're sort of, you're really getting amongst it now and obviously you, you've moved to Townsville and, and obviously that's opened up a few opportunities for you. But but taking it back to, uh, we'll say Victoria, you know, taking you back to, to the Samba days and I know that's only sort of been the last few years, but how did that come about? You know, can you remember your first experiences chasing, I guess, the ghosts of the, of the bush? But, um, you know, take us back to those first few hunts chasing Samba. Um, well, yeah, it certainly started like that after hunting pigs, um, yeah, from an early age um, and not having too much to do with deer. Um, they really did seem like ghosts of the bush. Um, and I think it was just through sheer kind of determination, just being out in the outdoors in the, in the Samba Hills, um, that my luck started to change. Like there were times where I wouldn't even find a drop of scat um, or, you know, a track or anything like that. And then it just became so prolific, um, hunting the right areas. And it definitely, um, again, thanks to my old man, with through his line of work, um, it's just we've got an abundance of small properties in Victoria. Um, so a lot of them are only, you know, 100 acres or up to 300 acres. Um, but with the bow, that's perfect. Like you, you don't need to move too much, especially with Samba, the less scent on the ground, the better. But, um, yeah, when I was probably around 18 and able to drive a lot more, um, again, every weekend I was out in the bush and just patterning the deer. Um, and the way I was hunting them was... Um, again, I'd just video them and pretty much observe them, walk um, certain gullies and ridges and just know where the deer were bedded. And then once um, it actually came around that it was September, um, back in 2015, I had a really successful year um, where everything seemed to just kind of click. Um, I'd hunted Samba for a couple of years and um, had some really close calls on some really nice stags and just like been at full draw and a stick, a stick been in the way or um, been at full draw and this deer's just walking up a game trail towards me and just somehow, you know, picked me out of nowhere. I hadn't moved for a minute. I'd been at full draw and they have that sixth sense where they're able to just detect danger, um, which made them such like a great adversary. But, um, yeah, in 2015 it all came together and um, after I'd say probably three months of hunting, probably three or four days a week, um, early mornings, afternoons, full days, um, it came together and I was able to shoot two Samba stags in less than a week. Um, and, yeah, for me it was ridiculous because I'd always passed on the younger animals and uh, I'd shot a couple of young spikers for meat over the years just almost as a reward for myself, just saying, you know, keep at it. Like yep. soon enough, if you put it in the right space, place like you have on this Samba spiker on the big stag, he's going to go down within sight and you're going to be rewarded. Um, and then, yeah, sure enough, it happened, and I think it was honestly the best feeling. I um, called my old man straight away, practically in tears, um, sat there for half an hour, just like could not get the smile off my face, called my brother, um, 
and yeah, it, it was it was just probably the best feeling. Um, I really rate Sam Badir as probably one of the smartest, um, just witty creatures. They've got that sixth sense that we were talking about, and um, yeah, to get two in that one week, I, I'd definitely put it down to just luck and being in the right place at the right time. But in the same sense, um, I'd been out there for years and days and all that type of stuff. So the hard just, work, the hard work to- was put in. Yeah, exactly. I just want to. I want to try and. I'm going to break it down a little bit more, uh, if I can. Um, for for a samba rookie like myself, I um, it's one deer species I I really haven't had anything to do with. Um, obviously, given from New South New South Wales as well. But um, just give us a rough rundown on how the season works for samba. Obviously, you know we're coming into the the fallow and the red rut now. Um, how does sort of the samba's year? You know, are they a deer that you can sort of chase all year round a little bit like Chittle or are they more like Rusa if you can sort of break it down, you know, month by month? Um, yeah, it's interesting. They're very similar to Rusa deer in terms of, I suppose, size and characteristics, like a big dark deer. Um, or I've had people like properties that I've gone to saying, yeah, I've seen a, deer, a horse, sorry, with antlers, like they're huge <laughs> animals. Um and then, so they're very similar to a rooster in that sense, body-wise, um, yep. in the way they kind of, they rut real hard, they fight pretty hard when they're in that zone, um, they wallow, so they get their hair all matted with like thick, crusty mud, and um, they're, honestly, they're amazing to watch, and when you smell like a Samba stag at a fresh preach, you can you can just track them based on their scent, oh, yeah. um, but they're honestly, they are like ghosts of the bush, so you might not see, I might hunt a particular property for, you know, six months of the year and not see a stag. And then I know the second that generally, sorry, so I'll go back a little bit. Generally at the start of the year when it's January um, and February, they're in summer months, they're generally in uh, velvet. Okay. And then come around April, I'd say that most stags would start be rubbing out. And I generally see a lot of sign on the trees. And in the, in the once the, it starts getting wetter and approaching winter, um, there's a lot more sign on the ground. You'll see a lot more rubs on all the saplings as they're stripping their velvet. Um, so you definitely start noticing that the stags are in the area. Um, and at this stage, a lot of them are quite nocturnal. They're just moving around a lot. And you've got a lot, a lot of young satellite stags moving in and trying to, like, suss out the hinds. Yep. Um, and I'm not sure if there's a mini rut or not. Samba are pretty um, mysterious in that sense. Like, not too many people know a lot about them. Um, and everyone's got different opinions. But sure. for me, I think there might be a little bit of a rut phase there where some of the hard antler stags will start circling with the hinds as it's getting a bit cooler and wetter and all that type of stuff. Okay. Um, and then I'd say through that phase, June, July, it starts getting a bit heated. And then by um, August, you'll start seeing um, those signs of spring when all the cherries will start flowering, all the wattles and all those type of things. Um, and the bush kind of just comes alive with, you know, life and um, you'll hear birds singing all that type of stuff. And the... Um, I, yeah, generally see the golden wattles when they start flowering. I, I definitely hit the bush and you'll see all the cherries are smashed up, all the pines, all the uh, different trees just being absolutely smashed. And um, that's when the wallows I generally find get hit up a lot. And that's basically for me in 2015 when everything came together. Um, I'd found in the previous few months where the hinds were all bedded and what stands they lived in and what hind lived there and with how many other deer and things like that. And then basically just kept checking in on those every every two days, wouldn't disturb them, would just video them from, you know, 50 metres, 100 metres, they wouldn't even know I was there. Um, and then all of a sudden these stags just started emerging. And I remember um, in one month I'd seen, I think, 11 different stags that I hadn't seen for the, you know, previous year. So wow. um, 
I definitely think, yeah, September, October is a rut phase. Um, okay. And it kind of coincides with spring and um, must be a hind estrus kind of cycle. But then yep. again, um, much like chittle deer, they, you can find hard stags throughout the whole year, velvet stags, um, you know, car stags. So they're just a really um, quite a different animal. Um, yeah, and it makes them very exciting in that sense. Like you can be hunting the hills at any time and come across a hot, big hard antler stag just doing his thing. So... So I guess does that um, obviously that's a you know a big pull to get you back into the bush, knowing that you can sort of you know head out and and, and find any particular stag at any time. But I mean, do you guys obviously September October sounds like it's the time to be there, and and obviously you know seeing things come through on social media, everyone gets pretty excited about that. But I mean, do you? I guess you're carrying the bow every time you head out, or you you you're just taking the camera and looking for sign, or is it you know how? How do you do go about that? Um, a bit of both. Um, there's certainly times where I just have a massive emphasis on videoing. Um, there are other times I'd go out and put cameras out. And as I was saying, like honestly, sometimes you might you have cameras out in the bush on these wallows, and you'll not get a, a sam like a mature stag even at night because um, a lot of them are quite nocturnal. Um, you won't even get a stag for you know six months. You'll take your cameras out thinking, now nah, these wallows aren't getting hit up. I've got to find them somewhere else. And then that week you take him out, the wallow absolutely gets trashed. Um, <laughs> it's just, you know, that <laughs> they're there when you're not there. If you take it, if you leave your boat home, you see the biggest stag kind of mentality. Yep. Um, so there were certainly times that um, I wouldn't take the bow out and I'd just go on video or I'd check out a new property and, you know, I'd, I'd just go there and try and get miles under my feet and take the video camera out and I'd video the biggest, nice, mature stag. Um, and just think I've literally hunted with the bow for six months, needed this opportunity, and then I take the video camera out. But it, it honestly was such a uh, privilege just to see a big mature samba stag up close. Yeah. Um, and yeah, now that I have got um, a couple on the deck, I really do look for, look back and kind of appreciate all the footage I've got and the trail. I've got it just so happened that the stag, my first samba stag that I ended up shooting, I had on trail camera that year that I shot him and the year before. Um, so I did kind of pattern him and yep. the, about two days before I shot him, I'd actually try to get dad to come from work. It was late in the afternoon. He just finished a massive couple of weeks of work. And, um, I said, look, you don't even have to walk that far where it was. It was just down from the prop the house on the property down the, the ridge and stuff like that. And then yeah, I just said, just sit there. It's been absolutely smashed the last few days. I would not be surprised if you shoot yourself a nice stag. He said, no, nah, not tonight. I might come back tomorrow. <laughs> and um, as it turned out, I would have been absolutely stoked if it happened for him. But um, as I was coming back to the car just on dark, I ended up spotting that stag there. And two days later, I ended up taking him from there. So, um, or a couple of hundred meters from there. So that was just good, um, I suppose, reward for doing my research and kind of knowing he was in the area. But um, yeah, so just. Um, to answer your question, yeah, I'd go out some days with just a video camera, other days just doing camera runs and putting out trail cameras and things like that, um, just trying to understand them and locate them and research them a bit better. And then there were like months at a time I'd just go out with the bow and the camera on the backpack. And um, I was actually fortunate enough to film or semi-film the second stag that I ended up shooting. Yep. Um, that because I had shot the other stag a couple of days previous, I knew there were other stags. I'd seen about ten others in the area. Um, I was set out to kind of 
make the most of the weather and I was just loving the bush at the time. I was like coming off a bit of a high, just seeing so many deer um, and it really was just so rewarding hunting those couple of September months or that September month and those spring months um, that I thought I may as well go out and video a stag and um, it just so happened that instead of finding a young, young immature stag or a couple of hinds, a nice um, big, another bigger stag kind of walked towards me and I was just quick enough to kind of set the camera up and I got him coming right in on a game trail and I drew back and I didn't know this at the time but he'd literally taken a step out of the view camera, the viewfinder and <laughs> I'd shot him beautifully and he'd travelled about 80 metres and fallen over. Um, just a big, big animal. Like the Ozcut brought it, had taken out his shoulder, um, I dare say the top of the heart and his lungs and he still made it 80 metres and then yeah, fell over. Tough. But, um, yeah, I managed to get enough of it on videos, so I've got a lifelong memory there. But um, that was probably one of the most rewarding kind of hunts I've been on purely because to shoot a sand with the bow is hard enough, but to get one on video and shoot it is self-filmed as well. Is um, <laughs> That's all the charts, that's what that is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that was pretty exciting and definitely on a high from then. Definitely. Um, Did that spark something? I think so. Um, in terms of just bow hunting, um, that was just – phenomenal um I, from there i kind of set out to film all my hunts if that makes sense yep. um i think since then my brother and i've kind of made a pact to each other to um again someone that like brad smith has inspired us there's a lot of those australian bunting producers now that are producing amazing quality work um like jerry redmond you see those boys from bow hunt down under um putting out some really good stuff um and just like youtube in general i think like i've got a lot of stuff on youtube um, but it's just sharing with, you know, other people and I get a bit of a kick out of, um, a few times up here in Townsville, I've walked down the street and someone's been like, Oh, how's your hunting going? I've seen you on YouTube and things like that. <laughs> That's um, pretty cool. And, um, I get a bit of stirred up from like a, my girlfriend and a few of my mates like, Oh, you're famous, you're on YouTube, blah, blah, blah. And like, cause they've been around me when someone's pulled me up. Uh, <laughs> but it's honestly just the best feeling when you can help someone and they say, Oh, I got into the sport because of you or, um, you know, like what gear do you suggest? And I'm not technically minded at all. I've just kind of been really fortunate in shooting some good broadheads, good arrows, getting some really good tusk camouflage gear um, and, you know, a good bow. And I'm just fortunate that, yeah, I shoot really close and can stalk in quite well and stuff like that. Um, so I'm not the biggest technical person. I should definitely improve a lot more. But, um, yeah, to be able to just help other younger people, I think it's really cool. And even not even younger people. I've had, you know, dads message me and be like, mate, I've got my myself and my son wants to come out now because we've watched your videos at home. And um, just, yeah, so that's kind of, that Samba hunt really sparked um, a love for kind of videoing my own hunts. And then yep. my brother James and I have um, started producing a lot more stuff on YouTube, which has been really cool. Um, and just, you know, we look back on these. We have little movie family nights and watch each other's bow hunts, um, which is awesome. Um, and, yeah, it's just it's really quite rewarding in the same sense, taking an animal but having it on film and things like that. Well, I've got to say, you know, I watched some of your stuff just uh, the other day, actually, when it, some of your more recent stuff. And um, I've got so much stored on hard drives you know from over the years and, and especially when I had more time and and uh, some pretty good property access and I'm actually going to to cut them all down and, and start getting them out as well because there's some stuff there that you know I don't even, even know if I'll see again you know what I mean so oh, um, you know just watching the little stuff that you guys do you know it, it definitely is you know it's inspiring and I think um, you know they don't have to be too flash either you know you've got the guys 
you know, doing the, the unbelievable stuff and, you know, we can just throw our little bits in between and it's a pretty good mix, I reckon. Oh, that's it. And I think for a little while I was focusing a lot more on the, you know, the uh, the kill as such, yep. um, whereas now I've just been trying to, you know, like some of the things you see out in the bush, um, a few years ago I was pretty lucky to witness a tiger snake eating a young little willy wagtail. I've put that up on YouTube and that's gone mental. I think yep. that's had like one million odd views. Yep, that crazy. video alone so yeah. just little things like that other people love seeing um and yeah it reminds yourself you've got these hard drives and so much valuable footage and resources and things like that and yeah it only takes one person to learn something and shoot you know an animal of a lifetime and you think you know that's it's pretty incredible what we've got and how we can all help each other out it's cool yeah definitely i mean it is and i mean just being able to look back at it i think is is just one good thing you know because unfortunately we're all going to get older and you know <laughs> most of us all have kids and children and grandkids and all that and and that's what i sort of look forward like i i watch my stuff now and and my kids are only little they're only you know four and three but uh, they absolutely love it and they think you're a hero because you're on the tv like they just think it's no, something else you know and no, I imagine it's the best feeling. You get a giggle out um, and of yeah, it. Yeah, I can say it is because I can p- remember it from when my dad was showing us videos and things like that. So it definitely is, um, yeah, so so rewarding. And um, as you said, just everyone gets old um, and having that stuff there is um, invaluable later on. Definitely. Jumping back to, um, you know, the chasing the sand around and, and obviously committing so much time to it, but give us a breakdown on sort of, you know, what kind of country it was. I mean, I know those samba can inhabit some absolutely, you know, thick as anything, but then they can get out in, in a little bit like the rooster and just be out in sort of open cleared hills. But what sort of country were you sort of hunting? Um, I hunted such a range of country. There were some places where it was like almost granite, rocky outcrops um, with dense just like almost rainforest and ferns and all those epiphytes and different kind of it just looked different um amazing kind of country real wet with creeks in the middle of it and they'd be such kind of picturesque um like clear running creeks and then all of a sudden you just have this muddy wallow in the center of it and you think where are these deer coming from and because they were so wet you could see the game trails and all that type of stuff um but at the same time then i'd hunt almost urban fringe kind of country being in victoria there were some properties i hunted with 20 acres and you could hear the neighbors next door so i'd just stick to those being you know like video properties and things like that or sitting in a tree stand um and try not to move but there were, there were more deer sometimes in those urban fringe countries than that real harsh kind of country out in the middle of nowhere so yep. um trying to find the balance which i think i did but that property um that i ended up shooting the two deer on was uh 500 acres okay. and that was really nice. Um, it, I'd say fringe country. It wasn't too harsh, but some of the hills, like if you were to try and march up it, you'd you know you'd end up on your backside just exhausted. Yeah. Um, real thick kind of tea tree in parts, and then it'd open up into nice little feeder gullies and areas where the deer kind of ventured out of. Um, so yeah, it's actually bringing back fond memories just picturing <laughs> it now. <laughs> That's good. Um, and all I remember is being bloody cold especially in winter um you think look think back now that i'm living in townsville where it's bloody 25 degrees at night and humid (laughs) um some of the days i'd just sit out there and if i was doing a sit and wait or a real slow you'd sometimes you'd walk you know 150 200 meters in an afternoon and just glass every patch of timber looking for an ear or a nose or you know a rump of a deer or a bit of hair or movement um and just this ice cold breeze just coming through your back uh, sorry through your front heading out the back of the hill um 
yeah, just <laughs> extremely cold and wet and miserable times of the year. And then um, there's other times that you can hunt them in the extreme heat and just the most noisy of flitter where they're on those open benches and ridges. So they really are a deer where they can pretty much live anywhere and it makes them so unpredictable. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, like it just ranged in, in I suppose, like the, not the climate as such but the, definitely the habitat. Um, they're just a really um, adaptable animal especially since those fires back in 2008, mm-hmm. um, the, the Samba deer's population dynamics changed so much. I think they just moved to a lot more fringe country from um, where those like parks and, you know, bushland that got, was so thick got burnt. Um, there were hundreds of deer that, you know, obviously had to leave those areas and they can travel so far and through little fingers and pockets of bushland and they just ended up in the most, you know, unknown kind of places and, um, yeah, it well suited us as bow hunters because their population spread out and things like that. But, yeah. Um, yeah, they really could be found kind of anywhere. Did they find, um, and this is probably going back on a little bit more of a um, biological sort of, sort of things, but did they go back into those burn areas? I know sort of over in the States, you know, talking probably elk here, but when they have a burn, the following couple of years in a burn area, the, the elk just, they just swarm to it because of obviously oh, the growth. Yeah. Did the Samba do the, kind, the same thing? I believe so. I think for the following few years after those fires, it was probably the best hunting you could have there as, you know, the vegetation wasn't too thick, but the, yep. the feed would have just been phenomenal. Um, and then I didn't really hunt too many of those places as they were like um, state forests and things like that, and I had such good private access. Sure. Um, but then I'm pretty sure that it actually got too thick. All that growth coming through at the same stage yep. at the same time would have just, you know, almost blanketed um, and been a, such a blanket of bush that, People just couldn't get in there. So, that, again, the deer numbers spread would have built up and from there just spread out. And I think Samba deer, it's something like double their population every two or three years. Um, I've heard. I'm not too sure on the source or yep. how accurate it is, but it makes sense. Like, you know, I've seen hinds with young ones next to them and a, like a young spiker that's probably a yearling and they, they look absolutely full, um, you know, pregnant in, in the guts there. Yep. So, um yeah, they're, they're um, definitely survivors, um, and I don't think that fire would have been um, too much of a disadvantage for them at all. Um, yeah. As you said, like over in America in the States there, I think those regrowth areas probably would have been more beneficial for them. Oh, definitely. I mean, they, you know, if if you, well, that's why they're on the mapping things, you know, you, you can go put a layer over a map these days and um, find <laughs> where latest burn areas and you might as well just go straight for them, so... Yeah, no, uh, definitely. That's how much they rely upon them. For a, um, you know, for someone that's maybe down in the Samba country, um, you know, that's looking possibly to, you know, get in a bit of hunting, what's the first sort of things you're sort of looking for? We've sort of covered a little bit of the country, but within that country, what are the few things that you could sort of say um, is a good starting point for, I guess, for to try and find a stag? Um, I'd definitely say... Um, investing in just ground hours. So I'd definitely say approach it, um, approach the property as much as you can, um, especially if it's private property and you've your sole access, you know where you're walking, what scent's being put down. If it's um, public land, which is Victoria's really lucky, they've got a lot of um, public land that people can access, um, I'd just try and cover as much ground as you can early. Do, get, do your research, get on those, get the topography maps and all that type of stuff down, see where your creeks are because they are generally the areas that hold the most um, the most sign being wetter areas um, and they are animals that love to, you know, um, wallow and, you know, hit those, they'll hit game trails up and be, often you'll find them on those game trails or in those thicker, denser tea tree pockets. 
Um, so I'd just, if you can afford trail cameras and things like that, just see what's in the area. It might give you a bit of hope. If you've put cameras out over a wallow and there's nothing going there for a little while, you might have to shift somewhere else. A lot of times I've had something on a, I've walked the thickest bush and found a great wallow, what I thought was a great wallow, and put a camera there for six months and not got a single photo of a mature stag, only to realise 50 metres away in the, another direction. Um, so a little bit more, like if I had just kept walking or approached it from a different side of the property, I would have found this absolute like mammoth wallow that's had the most sign through it. It's a cleared, like a bulldozer's gone through there. Um, and I think... They are quite secretive animals, but when you do find a hot spot, you know it's a hot spot. So yep. it, it, from there, like you can honestly hunt it how you like. Um, if you're a bit unsure and you can put the time in, um, I'd set up a tree stand if you can do that. Um, that's a great way of hunting sambity. Sure, you can you know sit there for you know hundreds of hours and not even see a deer, but when you do, I think it's going to be quite rewarding. Plus, just the amount of other wildlife I've seen lyrebirds and things like that. In the Victorian hills, they're quite beautiful. Um, wombats, other, you know, just other animal species that come through. It's, you know, amazing to see. Um, or another bit of advice I'd say is, well, obviously things like get the wind right, um, do your research of, you know, if you're up on this hill in the morning, which way the wind's going to go or down low, which way the wind's going to blow in the morning and afternoons and things like that. It will just, you know, give you a route to travel if you're going to be spot and stalking. Um, to do with that i'd definitely invest in a good pair of optics um and probably one of the biggest things that you don't probably wouldn't think about is just a rangefinder having a really good rangefinder that does angles um mm -hmm. because you might in those hills there you might think an animal's you know 20 meters when it's really 40 or you might think it's 60 meters when it's actually 20 like it just yep. it sounds ridiculous but i've ranged deer and been like like are you kidding i would have thought that was 35 40 meters away and it's 15 like it just makes the biggest difference um, with hills and opposite faces and things like that, especially when it is really steep and there's a bit of undergrowth. Um, so they're probably my main pointers and advice, but um, it really is. Um, I think it's just something that you're going to go out there and make heaps of mistakes. Um, <laughs> That's bow hunting. And, oh, and obviously sometimes it gets so frustrating. Um, <laughs> you'll be out there and you just you're thinking, oh, I've had you know a camera out there for six months. It's got nothing. I've walked out there and done all these trips and early morning starts, late night finishes, backpack trips and things like that. Um, and then all of a sudden it just clicks and it's more I think the deer have to make a mistake for you yeah. to kind of see the rewards. Um, yeah. And, yeah, things like that. It's just, yeah, that's as you said, that's bow hunting. Um, yeah. I think a lot of the time, you know, you said the deer needs to make a mistake. You've just got to be there for the time that, when that deer makes a mistake, you can capitalise. And, and I think, look, and it's, it is a lot of problem time. We were chatting about that before we started recording, but, you know, time management is a is a struggle these days. And, you know, for the ones that can prioritise that time, you, you're going to do well. If, you sit, if you're in those areas long enough, just like, you you know, back in 2015, you, you did the time, you spent the time there and, and it clicked. And sometimes there isn't a magic potion for something to click. Um you know, you can go through many stories and many people of, you know, how well they've been and how well they've, they've achieved, you know, certain trophies or whatever they may be doing. But, you know, it is time no matter what sport it is. Oh, 100%. You've literally summed that perfectly. I'm just sitting here kind of laughing to myself thinking I'd love to think I'm, you know, the greatest Sambadir bow hunter in the world and things like that. But honestly, 
Those two deer, I dare say, made a mistake somewhere in the long, along the lines, and that's led to me taking them. I'm yep. sure I've done 99 things correctly, but that one thing they did incorrectly has just made the world of difference. Because like, there's been times where I've done 99 things correct, mm-hmm. had deer at 20 metres, not even knowing I'm there, and then, you know, the deer's just taken a step and not presented a shot. And, yep. you know, you've just you got to hold, hold your draw and just think, you know, being out here, it's going to happen again. Or, you know, he's just going to take that step back and present a better shot, things like that. And honestly, it's not, the best way to do it is never force it. Um, I'm so glad that those two deer came the way they did, um, especially after so many years of trying. Um, and again, yeah, back to what we were just saying, it's, I think it's, yeah, just they've got to make the wrong step. You've got to make all the right ones. Um, and when it does happen, it's honestly the best. It's the most euphoric feeling. You, um, Yeah, I called my dad and spoke to him for half an hour near crying i was just sitting there looking at this animal thinking it actually i, I th- thought i was in a dream like i needed to wake up so um <laughs> and you've obviously shot critters that are like that um That's and definitely. it honestly doesn't even have to if for me it was just those two deer because i had them on such a pedestal as such a hard adversary but i've shot many other species you know i remember my first fox was like that um yep. so it's just putting in time i think that's what makes it so rewarding and doing it the right way um but yeah that's just bow hunting, I suppose. Is, um, there's so many things going against us, and to get it to all line up perfectly and, and happen um, makes it so rewarding. And I think you know that's you, you said it perfectly, and and that it, the reward at the end is is from all the hard work. And sometimes it takes a little bit to you know I guess pick yourself back up and and and, and go on the next hunt. And I, I'll be completely honest with you, I've I've had a, the last twelve months have been like that. But I guess at the end of the day. It's it's what you want to try and get out of it. You've mentioned numerous times about what you've seen and smelt and seen, you know, heard on those kind of things with the animals, and um, it's just like you know your, your big adventures. If if you're going over there to kill something, you're probably going to be disappointed in the end of the day because it doesn't always happen, and especially bow hunting. You know, it's uh, you're definitely not going with the easiest sort of equipment to um, to take the harvest. So you got to make sure you enjoy the ride or the adventure, as they always say. Oh, definitely. And that's, I think I really realised that last year, um, having a few new properties up here in Townsville, I just moved up, um, got access onto some properties where I wasn't allowed to bow hunt. All I could do was, it was just an avenue where when I couldn't get onto my properties that I could hunt, I was able to go there and film deer. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just took that as an opportunity on the chittle deer to um, simply get outdoors, get away from uni and all that type of life and work life um, and just, you know, escape basically what is reality these days and what so many of us get stuck in these concrete jungles um that i literally just lugged around the heaviest backpack threw all my camera gear in there and just went nuts for a weekend um and i honestly think that's the most i've learned about chittle deer um it's which is really exciting because i've done quite well on them in the previous years when i was in victoria I'd, i was mad keen for them i thought they were the most beautiful stunning animals and um, they're in that same genus, I think, as Samba deer. So yep. they are quite, they're related. Um, and I do see many similarities. But in the same sense, for a bow hunter, there's mobs of, you know, if you're on a good property and um, I'm fortunate that some of my properties are like this where there's, you see mobs of 20 deer, there might be 15 hinds and a couple of little stags and then one mature stag. Um, it's totally different to Samba hunting where you might not see a, a Samba deer for, you know, months at a time. And then you go up here and you can hunt one property and, after you can drive on the main road and to to your property and see deer on the side of the road and you're thinking what the hell like this is, <laughs> this is ridiculous and then you get out there and you're hunting and they are the most frustrating little 
yep. creatures you'll ever experience. Um, and the way that you can, you know, be at 20 meters and again, everything be right. And the way that you can shoot and aim for their heart and really low, I emphasize shoot almost, almost low, lower than their heart shot. And these critters just duck the string and evade the arrow. Like it's something that at first I was like, what the hell, what am I doing wrong? And then you kind of realize that you are doing something wrong in terms of like if they've got the slightest inkling that you're there, they're going to duck that arrow and yep. the shot's not on. So it's something that I just learned to deal with. Um, and honestly, Chittle Deer have kind of been, again, it's for videoing, it's um, I've really appreciated them, probably more so than Samba Deer, just mm -hmm. because you do see them and you've got opportunities to learn more about your camera gear and you yep. know get these cool shots and the lighting's a lot better. It's a lot warmer climate and golden grass and all that type of stuff for a lot of the year. Um but hunting wise um, they're just they're totally different to Sambadir, despite being quite similar in many aspects as well. So um, we really are blessed, I suppose, in Australia with what species of animals we can hunt and how we can hunt them. A lot of them year round, um, and just yeah, it's it's not like those blokes in the US where I feel a bit sorry for them. They've got one animal and one tag and all this type of stuff yep. and then they've got to wait, you know, 12 months to do it again and you might learn something invaluable that 12 months previous but you might get an injury as well and not be able to hunt that following year and implement it. So we, we're constantly learning here in Australia, which is great. Um, in saying that, I do want to get over to the US. <laughs> and We'll get on that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I'm wondering a bit, buddy, talking bow hunting. Yeah. Well, I guess, um, and you, t you made a really good point when you when you switched to Chittle there, you know, with your move. And I actually had a few questions this week that came through and, and thank you to those guys that um, sent me the questions um, of what you want to hear on the, on the podcast. But, you know, great timing for this one was, you're not every property you're getting onto because I know access is a, is a huge thing here in Australia. So for anyone that's listening overseas, majority of our hunting, bar probably Victoria, is done on private land. So, um, you know, we do have to have access from the owners, the managers or whoever it may be. So it's obviously a big thing which you've had to find out, you know, going to Queensland, do it all over again. Um, I really like the point that, you know, you said that some, some properties you couldn't get onto to shoot the deer but you took the camera instead and you learnt the deer. And I think that's a, a real valuable point for anybody that's getting into the game. Um, it's not all about, you're not going to be able to go and shoot something on every person's property because some people just don't want you to do it. It's as simple as that. Um, but take the opportunity there and, and, yeah, learn the game species for when you do get that property and that opportunity to go hunting on the next one. Oh, definitely. I think that makes the biggest difference. Um, and not even, you know, animals that you can hunt necessarily. Like I video... Um, wallabies and things like that and I'll just I'll sneak in and try and you know use which tree line or whatever I'm going to use and try and get as close as possible and not break any sticks or or leaves and things like that and just obviously the bow sitting on the ground or you know you're just using the camera and um, you know get as close as you can and just every time you sneak in on an animal you're using those skills that are obviously going to pay off later on at a later date so um, it's just all about you know not kind of being sour if you haven't got a property at the moment or if you can access somewhere that is purely videoing or photography. Um, even if you haven't got a good camera or you can't get out there and use a camera or anything like that, it's simply just, you know, one, being out in the outdoors. If you can share that with someone like a family member or a girlfriend or whatever, um, that's just going to make it more enjoyable. But two, just you're bettering yourself and, you know, experiencing more of the Australian outback and learning more about these animals, um, seeing kind of what trees they might rub or what fruits they're eating or what, you know, ground um, cover they're eating, things like that that you go, oh, I've seen that 
them smash that tree on that property. I'm sure they do it on this property and you find where those trees are and then all of a sudden you're in the, this route where a chittle stag will walk past. Mm-hmm. I've had that many occasions where I go, oh, there's you know, a nice green feeder gully. Um, where, where's this tea tree going to be that they're going to go and bed down because they do that at my other property where I go and video them. So And it works and just that's, again, just bush knowledge and purely being out there in the outdoors um, that it starts to pay off. Um, and, yeah, it's... I think knowing that as well has made videoing and photography so enjoyable. Um, it's definitely frustrating when you get a <laughs> massive chittle stag walking to like 15 metres um, and you can't move and get the focus or manual settings right and he's sitting there like looking at you like, what is this object in the grass in front of me with this big lens and things like that? <laughs> and then he bounds off and you're like, oh, my goodness, I wish I'd had the bow there. But at the same time, if you do manage to get that one photograph, it makes a world of difference and you've learned a thing or two. And just seeing some of these animals, again, they're introduced. Um, but honestly, like a chitty is probably the most beautiful, fascinating creature you'll ever see. Um, and just, yeah, again, like um, I truly believe that about many of our, these pest species in Australia. Um, if, if I can't shoot them, I'll, I love to video them and learn about them. Um, and I do generally have, even with the feral cats, I have such an appreciation for, for them as hunters and killers. Like they weren't introduced by themselves here. Like humans did that. Um, but in the same time, like they kill so many Australian native animals and we've got to do our bit as bow hunters to, um, to eradicate them and control them and, you know, do our bit for conservation and Australian species. But in the same sense, I do have such an appreciation for them as predators um, and just, you know, doing what we're doing better, but better, um, you know, as hunters, I suppose. So Yeah, definitely. So. I mean, I mean, you did right. You know, you can, and you can tell you how much time you spend in the bush, you know, you can appreciate, you know, every, every animal's job or, you know, place, um, you know, whether they're introduced or whatever they may be, they have, they've found their place now so um you know it's good to obviously manage them but you know understand what they're doing and how we can fix it towards a good thing as well so yeah no definitely but um you know so go you know with the chittle um a little bit like the samba you've spoken about you know you're reading them you're watching them and those kind of things um chittle are one of those animals as you said before that are are very frustrating because you can you can watch them you can see them (laughs) you can do anything like that um i mean for the newbie hitting the chettle, um, you know, I guess what's the what's the top three things you would say to to someone that's just got access to a chettle property? Um, I'd probably say find the rubs, find the stags. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing is similar to sambadi, um, and probably the way I hunt is just glass as much as you can. Um, less scent on the ground for one, but two chettle deer um, so camouflage, and you think like this creature with you know a golden cape and all these white spots you'd think oh yeah and big you know white antlers stained antlers you'd think they'd stick out um in the bush but <laughs> on evening even on green grass these deer just like blend into the cover yep. it's ridiculous um and generally so i'd say yeah use your optics and maybe third thing would probably be um if you find one there's 99 there's percent of the time there's a million more <laughs> yep. um and Another thing to do with that is um, I'm not sure if it's a thing, but I find that there's this ridiculous like zone with chittle deer where I'm either at 200 metres and I don't get closer or I'm at 50 metres and less. Yep. Um, in between that space, I just feel as if every movement you make, you're either, you're either looking through the binoculars and you can't see everything with your field of view or 
you just yeah you can't make that those movements like i try and get out of that zone as quick as possible either get Mm -hmm. closer or further back depending on if i'm videoing or with the bow and things like that or if i'm just watching a group um and a lot of the time that would be dictated by if there's a stag in in that group i'll try and get closer and like into the group um but again i love sitting off chittle deer if there's the stag that i don't want to shoot is there um, but there's a lot of hinds and they're showing signs of being in season or receptive with chittle deer um a lot of the time, if you see a hind and a fawn, there's 99% there's going to be a stag nearby and he'll harass them and he'll just be doing loops of the mob. Mm-hmm. Um, and with chill deer and just like if you do find hinds, I generally get to within 50 metres of them and I'll be downwind of them and normally within half an hour if everything's going right and I remain undetected, um, a satellite stag or a stag will be doing his rounds between mobs and he'll, he'll just pop up and they materialise out of nowhere um a lot of the time you'll hear him um rubbing a tree in the distance and you just think what is that what's going on over there and then sure enough a minute later the stag just pops up on these hinds and you're like how do i not see him or where do you come <laughs> from um and then sure enough a couple of minutes later there'll be another one and they're just they honestly doing their route like they just move through the through that grass like nothing you can't believe it until you see it um and yeah it just makes for some unreal kind of hunting yeah i was going to mention that you know they can uh, do yourself a favour, uh, Brad Smith's not yourself, but anybody listening, uh, Brad Smith's Deer Addiction too, I think Definitely. it is, um, yeah. has a bucket load of this stuff on there. And one thing I picked up a lot, and I've only chased a chittle once, I was lucky to to harvest two chittle in the one trip, but um, many moons ago. But um, one thing I noticed is they they've they had their root, as you said, and they you mentioned trees before they do have you know those trees they keep an eye out for like you can nearly say as you said you see that patch of trees you've really got to start glassing it really well or get near it because if you yep. see them out in those open paddocks you know open the open sort of grass hills and things like that they'll generally make their way to certain patches and, and if you're there long enough or going back to you know can watch them long enough you you'll notice the trees are going to go back to 100%. And it's actually gone over my head, but I'm going to give everyone listening the biggest chittle deer um, tip, and it will save you countless hours and possibly get your chittle stag on the deck. I just thought of it then based on what you were saying and what we, we were basically talking about it. Um, but it's something that we kind of, I, I'm sure many other people have done it, but more recently um, we went and got antlers and rubbed them together. And you'd think that's more of a fallow deer kind of thing during the rut. <laughs> but if you get a stag in the right frame of mind, it doesn't even ha- – I've done it with sticks on a yep. tree. And if you're next to somewhere that he thinks one of his trees are or his – <laughs> and believe me, Chittle has unbelievable tenacity when it comes to like their preachers and their scrapes. Yep. Um, I've seen five or six stags fight over one scrape and there was not a hind in, in sight. Yep. And each one went over and – dug at the ground, got rid of the other scent from the other males, you know, urinated in it, rubbed the trees, used all their preorbital glands and things like that. Um, so definitely rubbing antlers together. Um, you can buy rattle bags. If you find a casty, just hit it on a tree, scrape it, just that noise because believe me, you might not be able to see deer, but within a couple hundred metres there are deer. They just blend into that bush, yeah. especially if you're on a property where you know there are numbers. Sometimes you don't even – just be downwind of where you think the deer will be make a little bit of noise every so often and just watch and something will happen. Um, and the second thing to do with that and calling um, is to, sounds probably ridiculous, but buy yourself a hoochie mama call from Primos, the truth, um, the elk calls. You're giving all and the secrets away, man. 
Am I? Oh, is this, <laughs> nah. Is this, <laughs> um, I just thought about it. Um, yeah. And again, going back to like that YouTube stuff, and if you can help someone out, um, I'm yeah, I'd be more than stoked. Um, if you can, yeah, get one of those. Um, get the Eastress Hind call, I think it is, or the the Fawn call, or whatever. Any of them will probably work. Just suss it out. It's something that you'll make a noise. It works as a predator call with dingoes and things like that as well, yep. and wild dogs up there. Um, even wedged, <laughs> wedged out eagles. Yeah, they come, they come hooking it, don't they? Yeah, I've seen the most epic thing where I did that and a wedge-tailed eagle was flying over my head and I didn't realise there was a chittle fawn in the grass about 30 metres away and I basically led this poor little chittle fawn to its demise because the wedgie spotted it by itself. Oh, no. Yeah, ended up swooping down, grabbing it in the grass, lifting it up to I don't know how many metres, probably five or six metres in the ground. It was high enough, dropping it, and it made the most sickening kind of shattering noise. Um, and then it's gone down, grabbed it again, and flown off with it. And I've just seen it drop it again. Yep. And uh, so, yeah, but it definitely works because the whole mob ran in wondering what where this calf was or hind yeah. and estrus was. And they make this little almost like a fallow mew kind of noise yep. um, where they the hinds, when they're talking to each other and the stags do a, a number of noises. It's just something you'll, you'll hear when you hunt chittle deer or if you get up to Queensland and you can do that. Um, and be fortunate enough to experience it. But they are really quite a vocal species, um, and it makes for some really exciting action when you get a whole mob of deer coming in or, if you can time it right, um, get a lone stag coming in to where he thinks, you know, right fighting stags are and have, you know, almost like a fallow scrape kind of setup where yep. you get someone set up in the right position, a caller or a video man a little bit further back with the right wind and all that type of stuff. You can honestly... For such a hard deer to stalk normally, where there might be a mob situation and you're stalking, valley crawling for hours, you can actually stalk them and get it, sorry, call them into, you know, under 10 metres and wait for that right shot angle and get a lone stag on the deck or a stag in a mob or things like that. So it is another avenue of chittle deer hunting um, and definitely something to try. It's pretty heart racing stuff when they do come in. You think, what the hell is going on? But um, yeah, it's an epic style of hunting. It's hard to imagine chittle deer at 10 yards. <laughs> oh, honestly, in some of the coolest video footage I've got, that's something I'll, we were talking about it earlier and just hard drives and stuff, but I've got footage on there of, you know, on again on a property where I couldn't bow hunt and I was just videoing and I, um, James, oh, we could hunt, sorry, but not for deer, for pigs and James had just shot, um, my brother had shot a uh, hundred and something kilo saddleback boar, an absolute beast of a pig um, and we were going to harvest, uh, collect him and then, we just see this mob probably about 150 metres away. They've come over the basalt wall up here in Queensland. And we, I was like, oh, I'm just, you know, I've got the camera. I'm just going to try and see what happens. And we had, I reckon, about 60 deer at our feet, wow. four or five massive stags, some of them over 30 inches, which for those that don't hunt chitter deer is an absolute belter. Yep. Um, and we were just sitting there thinking, this is so epic to video on. <laughs> Imagine if we had our bows, like, it would be. And, yeah, again, like, and then you call lone stags in, so... Um, it is certainly a cool way to hunt them and like you said, get them into under 10 metres or 15 metres or whatever it will be, certainly well within bow range. Um, and then it's just about holding your nerve, keeping the, the arrow low on their heart because as we said earlier, even when they seem completely relaxed, chittle deer can duck the string and evade an arrow. So it's just about keeping your nerve, making sure you're aiming on the heart there um, because if they're half expecting a fight or a, a hind in season or anything like that, they're already on the edge, so you're just going to really make sure of those shots. Um, but 
again, it's just experience um, and something that you got to be in the bush to try and, yeah, cool way to hunt them. Definitely, mate. And on top of that, if anybody hasn't eaten it yet, but chittle deer is some of the nicest taste of meat you will ever have. It's it is phenomenal. unbelievable. Yeah, and I'm fortunate enough up here to pretty much be a poor uni student, but living off chittle deer. <laughs> um, oh, you poor man. Yeah. <laughs> so nearly all my red meat that I consume is either chittle deer mints or chittle back straps or chittle rumps and all the back legs and all that in stews and casseroles and schnitzels and things like that. So, it, like, yeah, as good as balancing is, um, it also, yeah, provides yeah. for me and my brother and those of my friends up here. And it honestly is probably the best red meat I've eaten. Um, yeah. So, yeah, no, 110%. With, um, so with Chittle, anyone that uh, hasn't chased them yet and is, is looking for, for the next species, deer species, I highly recommend putting Chittle right at the top of that list because they are some of the most fun you'll ever have, especially with a bow. And I believe they're a fair, fair uh, challenge with a rifle too. But, um, definitely just that open terrain and numbers i think with the rifle and again because you don't want to be in that that zone um Mm -hmm. it's quite difficult with the bow and rifle so definitely so yep put that on the list as uh there's some good outfits out there that are um they're running the hunts up north too so um you know anyone that wants to know about those you know i'm sure there's uh there's plenty of the magazines arrowhead magazine and, and the likes of um you know the internet and those kind of things so you you'll find the outfitters up there yeah, Mate, definitely. You, you mentioned it before. Uh, we're obviously coming into the fallow rut. Um, how? What's your experience on the fallow, and have you chased the the reds much as well? Um, a few years ago, I was very fortunate on one of my sand properties to get. It was the smallest population of red deer, um, <laughs> and I was able to. I pretty much hunted one stag for about a month. Um, I'd only seen him twice or three times, but I just knew his tracks were different to a samba deer. So I honestly haven't had much to do with red deer, um, but was fortunate enough to take a red stag with the bow. He wasn't the biggest stag by any means, um, but I think he was an 11-pointer. Not very long or anything like that, but just all the style, and it was more just the hunt that made it, you know, so memorable. For sure. Um, So in all honesty, I haven't hunted red deer too much. Um, I have hunted fallow the last couple of years, Mm -hmm. um, and definitely just the sights and sounds of the fallow deer right is honestly just phenomenal. <laughs> yeah. It's that that croak that kind of goes through you, similar to a red deer stag's roar. Yep. Um, it's just phenomenal. Um, it's, it, uh, it's different to any other type of bow hunting in my, in my experience because a lot of deer, Sambra, aren't vocal or too vocal unless they're barking. Um, Chittle deer, they, they do a bellow, but it's so sporadic that it's hard to kind of, you know, there's no real distinguished rut period. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. So there, it's not like a vocal kind of hunt. Um, we did mention that calling. Obviously, it's a little bit different. But these deer, for certain weeks of the year, um, it's coming up to it now in March and April, um, it honestly just goes off. It is phenomenal. And it sounds like every little ridge and nook and cranny of the mountain is just <laughs> there's a monster hiding in the bush there. Yeah. Um, this deep kind of burping noise, I could almost describe a croak as um it's yeah it's almost like a grunting snoring kind of i'm not sure you'd probably be able to describe it better than me craig yeah it um, is it's um i don't know it's something (laughs) it is something very (laughs) different but i mean you can definitely anybody out there can youtube it or google it but yeah i think the biggest thing with you know hunting fallow and and i'm sure 
you know, a, a lot of people, especially bow hunters, would say that, you know, that's something that we put high on the bucket list is, is taking a nice fellow and, and obviously the next step up is red deer. But I think those mornings you get up, but the you know, the fog's rolling in the, the gullies and, you know, you, it just all lights up just after daylight breaks and you've got bucks croaking in those gullies. I mean, there's, there's not too much better than, than that. Oh, 100%. And as you said, it is, I think, something that's on most people's bucket list as deer hunters, um, purely because there is almost a time when you can say, you know, in April, I want to put a week aside, get time off work, leave and all that type of stuff, and just dedicate a week of hard hunting to it. And, you know, it's something that you experience, and I dare say you'll be applying for leave every year after that if you can get it. Um, It's one of those things. Um, I'm a bit spewing. I can't actually get down to Victoria this year um with uni and all that type of stuff and those commitments um but my brother has just graduated vet um so he's down in victoria western victoria in really good fallow deer country so mm. i'm sure he'll be experiencing it and sending me bloody snapchats and instagram <laughs> posts and all messages and all that type of stuff rubbing it in but um no hopefully doubt. i can send him the odd chittle one to yeah get back at him, get back but, at him. yeah it Have is it. um honestly if i can encourage anyone to get out there and do it it's phenomenal um purely for just yeah as you said those misty mornings and you can't even see these animals and then you'll just hear them and they might be right on top of you 15 20 meters away on the other side a little crest or in the trees and and then when you do see that palm antler and you know the fog coming out of their their nostrils and (laughs) things like that and you know their swivels just rotating and bloody smashing a tree in front of you and fighting clashing other clashing antlers with other bucks it's truly just it's crazy um and that's just a rush um and it's honestly just some of the best hunting you can you can experience when it's the true rut is on it's um breathtaking it's amazing some of these hills you know victoria new south wales uh, and and parts of other states how quiet they can be for the rest of the year and then three to four weeks of the year it is absolutely mayhem (laughs) <laughs> oh, and that, that's, yeah, exactly the thing. I think um, that's so interesting. Like chittle deer, I can generally say I can pattern them year-round. Mm-hmm. Um, fallow deer, I haven't hunted them too much. Um, I have been fortunate to take a really nice buck or uh, two really nice bucks. Um, and same as red deer, I haven't hunted them too much. But I think it's also due to you do dedicate time of the year, generally March or April, to them. And then for a lot of that time, unless you really have them worked out, there's, and there are a lot of bow hunters who do, um, they can almost be just nomadic in terms of like you just won't see them for you know eight or nine months of the year and then during that rut just before it or just after it you can actually locate them yep um so you know like as accessible as they are you really do have to time that rut properly because they almost turn into ghosts in their own sense like that um at like samba deer is in a sense um so yeah it is make does make for exciting by hunting and also I like the fact that, you know, if you don't necessarily get a stag during the rut, they're probably going to disappear and grow. And then next year, you're just going to, you know, it's promising that you'll just see that, that buck that you may, may have lucked out on next year, bigger and better. And, you know, with his brothers and things like that, um, it's, it's exciting thinking that they can hopefully get away and grow and be a bit bigger for next year. Definitely. I mean, you touched on something there for, for those that have anticipating this rut, um, you know, maybe your first one or your first couple, um, you know, if you were watching deer sort of through the winter or you're out chasing another species like um, pigs or something like that and you've seen deer, um, they will, they do have sort of uh, kind of like a winter range. They they will winter and and sort of 
drop antlers and then feed up in, in sometimes different areas to where they'll they'll rut. So that's something just to keep in a bit of an eye on. If you're getting out there, you know, if you can find the sign of old scrapes and old thrash bushes, obviously they're the ones that you want to try and concentrate or definitely have a look at coming into the next couple of weeks. Um, the next month, um, you know, coming into the first week of March is a really good time. You're talking about the rattling with the chittle. Um, if you don't know what we're talking about rattling fallow in, you need to jump on YouTube and check that out. But um, it's pretty lethal. Or, once again, deer addiction from Brad Smith is yeah. you know, you've <laughs> got to get hold of that. Um, we keep mentioning it, and it's for good reason. Yeah, um, yeah we're, we're not just dropping that name. It's, uh, it will really help you, that DVD. Two-blade productions, yeah. Yeah. There's deer addiction, feral game, all of them. They've great, got great content. Not even for deer, there's... Um, Hogs of Oz, which I pretty much <laughs> religiously watched. I think I've, I think I wrecked that DVD. I've played <laughs> yeah. that much. Right? Mine have got too many fingerprints on them. I think Maybe. these days to bloody work. <laughs> but um, they're honestly phenomenal. Not even for animal. For, uh, sorry, they are phenomenal for animal knowledge. But that goes beyond that. In, in more so, in a sense that you'll see shot placement, and honestly, I think just the perfect way of how to do bow hunting. Um, yeah. You know, for me, you see him. It's like. I think all of Brad's shots are under 30 metres. He'll use the same arrow on countless animals, resharpen the broadhead, put it in the exact same spot on different animals, same result. They'll go down so quickly within sight. Um, and it's, you know, not through luck or chance or anything. Yeah. He just does it so methodically and um, it's all on that DVD, those DVDs. Um, and for a beginner, I watched them. Um, I'd highly encourage everyone to watch them, even if you're not a beginner, um, just to kind of refresh in your skills and, and see, you know, how someone else is doing it and how he does it so well it's really a breath of fresh air it is and it's a good it watch too it's they are well put together so yeah. um you know it, it's and they've they ain't got better and better as as they went on but some of the old school stuff the old whack and stack i think is pretty cool <laughs> yeah. to see occasionally but yeah um you know especially with all the cinematography and that we watch these days so yeah and definitely. look obviously you know the reason that you know one to have you on today Aiden and and uh you know some of the topics were covered is because a lot of the feedback I'm getting through the through the podcast and and is there's a lot of people coming into the sport who have got you know good access and, and credit to them have got good access straight away and they're I like how they're not wanting to waste that they're they're wanting to know information they're listening to podcasts they're reading and all those kind of things and and certainly asking the right questions so we to the guys that have you know have been there and done it all you know thank you for that it, uh, it's uh we learn off you as well when you put in the mags but so we're you know we're trying to help out these guys and share the knowledge that hopefully some people some some pick up some you know tips and and you know hopefully be able to put it to field next month oh definitely and and the thing is as you're saying as new bow hunters this day and age um i consider myself a new bow hunter um there's certainly i've definitely traveled a fair bit of australia but there's so many animals here i haven't hunted um, but we were talking previously just in the meet and greet earlier. Um, but there's so many, like, you know, iconic almost blokes, Ben Solaris, um, yourself, Adam Greentree, Mick Rodolfi, the Stojanovsky boys, um, all those fellas who have, you know, starting to branch out and do these international hunts. Um, and for me, like, I feel like such a beginner. I haven't done any international bow hunting. We were talking earlier. I didn't think about doing New Zealand maybe this year after uni's finished. Um Honestly, social media is my best friend. I've I've messaged a number of blokes, been in their ear. I'm going to message a few more that I've just mentioned. Um, and honestly, just pick their brains. There's no stupid questions that you can ask. Nope. Um, even if you feel a bit silly, like there's, I'm going to ask some of the most ridiculous stuff about gear, even though I've hunted 
you know, cold weather in Victoria, and I assume New Zealand's quite similar, but, you know, it's just, it's so, um, you don't, you want to be over, you want to ask these questions so that when you do a go over there, all you're doing is hunting and doing it properly. There's no, like, doubts or you don't want to be spending this coin, um, especially for me, like, as a uni student, um, I don't want to be spending this coin to get over there and be like, oh, I'm so, you know, underprepared. Um, and that's the best thing about, you know, social media, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, YouTube is a huge thing. It's like an encyclopedia, but it's not Definitely. even books. It's just it's all video and audio, and you can just see everything and rewind it. And there's more suggested videos. Like it's ridiculous. And then you can message people on there. All of that is just such an avenue to basically enrich your balancing side of things. Um, and it is like I, I suppose balancing almost started off for me as a hobby. Now I consider it a sport. I you know, I try and be fit for it. I buy the best gear for it. I do all this stuff. Yeah. Um, and it's purely because you respect the animals you're hunting. And again, you don't want to be on a different side of things. Once I think you start doing those international hunts or even some of those trips in Australia where you're traveling interstate, you are spending coin to do it because you love it so much. You may as well do it properly. So as much as people say, you know, it is just a hobby and blah, 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 and I don't want to get too serious. The second you're taking something's life, you have to be serious. Yeah, and, for sure. And obviously, you don't want to be going over there and spending a lot of money to go home you know, without seeing the things that you want to see, even if it isn't taking an animal. Um, but you still want to go out there and explore and be comfortable and do all these things. So as you said, yeah, just pick everyone's brain and it's, yeah, balancing in the circle with God is just growing every day, which is great to see. Oh, definitely. And I mean, the big thing in what I found, you know, four or five years ago, um, you know, I was, I was hunting sort of every second, third weekend. And, and these days with everything, you know, as, as we get older and, uh, priorities change you know i take my just my local hunts you know sometimes just as serious as or you know i prepare for them just as much as what i do my my big ones overseas which obviously my focus is those ones now because i they're set and planned for the year just a bit like the rut um so i sort of set myself up then because i don't get the opportunity to go out as much now um so you know where i used to be a couple times a month and now i'm only a couple times a year so i really want to make yeah make the most and really enjoy it so that comes back to you know being fit, um, oh, you know, healthy, yeah. um, having your gear in check, all those kind of things, and then you know talking to guys. I mean, I've been talking to guys, you know, about I've I've got a new property that I'm I'm sort of hitting, and um, you know I've I've taken one of my buddies up there to have a look. You know, he's a, he's, he becomes an expert as as Red Deer. He he won't he won't agree to it, but you know he's he's shot them, he's chased them every year, and. You know where are they? I've, I quizzed his brain there last week. You know, I ring him. So, what do you reckon? Where do you think they'll be? We've we've got a dry year. You know, where should I start looking for them? Because I've only got limited time to get up there. You know, I might yeah, get there once definitely. before the rut, and then I'll be there for the rut. You know, and yes, I'd love to go and spend two or three weeks up there, and I can guarantee I'll get it done. But you know, with with the short term, I, I branch out. You know, I'm certainly no expert when it comes to red deer or any deer for that matter. Because um, you know, I I think. I read a quote the other day, the expert's the person that's willing to learn. And, yep, and I, I, agree I, I really completely. took that on. I'm like, that, that, that's it, you know. You're only an expert, you know, for as much as you're going to learn the information that you can gather and, and having the confidence to ask, um, which I reckon these platforms and the magazines, I think are just perfect for it. Yeah, well, that's an avenue I kind of didn't mention. But, you know, as I think you've said, Arrowhead Magazine, um, there's a number of other ones here in Australia that are really great. Um, Arrowhead I've got a few articles in, um, but the work that Doug is doing um, is honestly just phenomenal, especially like some of those international hunts you see and just the way it's put together. Um, 
it's honestly a masterclass and that's there's such a educational avenue there um same as yeah youtube and the things we've discussed earlier but i, I just yeah i've got that same mentality um, i probably took it for granted a little bit um when i was samba hunting um and i look back on those years fondly because i was had a lot less being 18 i had a lot less um <laughs> responsibilities <Yep. laughs> even now in my early 20s i haven't for got sure. kids or anything like that um but honestly it um it changes so quickly. Um, I was hunting, you know, three or four days a week. Now I try and get out every couple of weeks. Um, and it just, you do have to, I still, I go to the same shittle blocks when I can and I, I tick off the same bucket list every time I go so that I do go there and I'm fully prepared. I've got all my gear sorted, everything weeks before, all my cameras charged, all my batteries charged. I've rang the property and I've picked his brain as to what the cows are doing, what paddocks they're in, yep. um, where, where he's seen dogs, um, where there was a little bit of water, everything like that. It's not even about the chittle deer. It's about the other animals, um, where he's seen a fair few kangaroos, where the grass is the shortest but the cattle can't get in, um, all these different things and aspects and components of it that will just make the tiniest little difference that might go my way in shooting a deer or putting it on the deck and taking meat home um, just honestly does make the biggest difference. And it's like you said with your mate about red deer. Um, I've seen today on Instagram there's your photo of um, a red deer from a few years ago has been circulating, yet it's awesome to hear that you're still asking other people about tips and you know little tricks. Um, and I do the same with chittle deer, even though I've shot a couple. It's honestly just, as you said, the expert is constantly learning. Um, and that's, yeah, I think if everyone can take that away from today's podcast um, and just, you know, everyone you, everyone is so approachable in the Australian, like, balancing community. Just send them a message. Um, pick everyone's brains. It's it's obviously just going to enrich your balancing experience. And I think it, um, you know, I know we mentioned this, I've mentioned this a couple of times on the podcast, but... The, short, the shorter you can make that learning curve by reaching out, uh, the more likely you are to stay in the sport and enjoy it because uh, it can be yeah. a frustrating game. And, and we do see so many people come and go, and it is a shame. You know, um, I love the sport, and obviously we're all very passionate about it, um, you know, and we, we want people to stay in it. So and it'll only help everybody oh, else. The, so Yeah, the perfect example of that, I think, is my father shortened my learning curve by years. Like I'm talking, he hunted with a rifle a little bit because that was all he knew. And then before my brother and I were born, um, he got into bow hunting. And he obviously in those 12 years of from when I was four to 12 and just following him around with the bow learning, you know, about hunting and animals and tracking and different things and wildlife and what terrain there is in Australia and just seeing the bush and traveling interstate, different things like that. Like that's such a blessing. Um, I learned so many different tips and tricks that like I didn't think were valuable at the time and then now I look at and think, oh, my God, I was so blessed. Um, and it's funny, like, and then the tables turned. Like a few years ago when I was hunting Samba every day of the week, our dad would come out with me, which was the best, some of the best hunting in my life, and he would be picking my brain um, <laughs> and I shortened his learning curve. So it's just it's amazing to think, you know, like the older generations helped me and then I've helped dad again. Um, and then it's just honestly like, he shot his first Samba Spiker, I think, last year. Um, and, you know, he'd hunted Samba deer for quite a long time. Um, and it was more just from not being able to get out. But when he did, it was honestly like like I'd shot another Samba Stag. It was probably the best feeling ever. Um, and the grin on his face was remarkable. Um, and it was I'd like to think that it was because, you know, 
I'd been able to help put him in the right spot or tell him which gullies were good and things like that just because he couldn't get out there and do it. So when he could do it, it was a valuable time and he was in the right spot. And, you know, like he's done that so many times for me. So, And that's just on a family level. But as we've been discussing, there's honestly like area for all of Australia to be doing this with each other. Um, and just, you know, especially mates and people there in the same regions or hunting, you know, similar properties and things like that. Um, it's, yeah, definitely the way to go, I think. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, everyone, you know, the, just respect it and and i think you know yeah, that, that information should be word. that information will be shared you know quite freely and you know i once again it can only go in a positive direction from there and you know just just a conversation a topic you had just before you know you mentioned about talking to the property owner and i did to be completely honest with you i you know i've I forgot all how much we rely upon property owners. You know, they're mm, they're there definitely. all the time. You know, they might say they only say, "Oh, there's heaps of pigs" or something. They're yeah, um, they're our professional hunters to a degree. Like you see it in definitely. South Africa and you know the states where these people are basically living in the bush. We've got them on our doorstep. Yeah, um, and that is just you know being, you got to be so appreciative for someone opening their. You think how many people you open your front door to, and you know, let inside your house. That's what they're doing every time yep. they let someone in, but they're doing it with the bow or rifle, video cameras and all these things, you know, and they've got thousands of dollars with livestock and crops and all this different stuff. So it's just, that's again, like, I think balancing in the word respect, you literally just go hand, hand in hand. hand. Yeah, for um, sure. And it's on all aspects, but yeah, you just, you've just got to do everything so right because again, if you do something wrong, it's not by yourself, it's by the whole balancing community. Yep. Um, and but property owners are honestly our best friends. Um, and sure, if you know one turns you down when you're door knocking, you think, shit, you know, that's not a good feeling. I mean, I, but you just got to go to the next one. You know, for every 10, 20, 30 you do, you're going to get that one that says, yeah. And the only reason they're saying no is because they've probably had a bad taste in their that's mouth. That's right. But again, you just got to respect it, get one that it does say yes. And then from there, the word of mouth is ridiculous. I've had properties say no to me. And then through getting onto the neighbor or the, you know, the neighbor's neighbor, Back in on. six months, he goes, oh, shit, you've shot a few chittle deer or, oh, you've got rid of those pigs that were smashing the fruit around the house or whatever. Yep. Um, oh, you've got a couple of wild dogs that were, you know, chasing the calves in the house paddock. Can you come and sort them out for me? I've got a couple of properties, you know, 600 k's away for a different species of deer also if you want to go hunt <laughs> yeah. them. It's amazing like, how it grows. Just, again, it's a networking thing um, and the more you kind of put your foot in the door and just again through speaking to people and you know being polite good mannerisms all these type of things it's amazing what doors open up for you mm, definitely and i think um you know jumping back on to talking to the property owners and this is probably a little bit of you know hopefully someone can take this forward especially if you're um haven't visited your hunting property coming into the into the rut um we obviously experience a, a crazy dry, especially in New South Wales here. It's it's really bad. It's going to be crucial yeah. for your rut to to find the feed. Um, I think most of your females, whether you're chasing red deer or or, um, or fallow, I think if you find the feed, you'll probably find the deer. So that's something to um, you know maybe have a chat with your property owners, your managers, or, or whoever's on the property. Um, try and get a little bit of information. It, it could save you a couple of days scratching your head i think so um i'm sure most yeah, a lot definitely. of people are going to get out scouting and stuff like that but um you know for the ones that a little bit shorter on time um that's certainly something to uh, to keep an eye out or, or another food source as well you know maybe there might be some blackberries left over or or something like that that just might hold a few of those girls in and um and yeah, probably concentrate even, those areas yeah even little like things that you might not think about but the neighbor might have planted a crop next door that yep 
pushing the deer from one side of your property closer to his, things like that. Um, and it's amazing how things can change in the bush a month, let alone if you've been out last year. So as you said, the property owner is your best friend in finding where that best feed is, where a little water source might be close to the feed or some tucked away bush that he hasn't touched or, or there's no cows in a certain paddock for a little while where those deer might be feeling a bit safer and more secure and less, you know, trampled and and pressure. Um, and I think pressure is a mass- massive thing, especially when you are considering the rut and people are dedicating time and to hunt. And some of these properties aren't too big, especially, you know, in Victoria and New South Wales. Mm. Um, and if you've got people hunting on that side of their boundary and then you're trying to, you know, hunt that same similar side, you might find that another little pocket's getting a lot more deer attention because, you know, it's changed from last year. So it's just, yeah, as you've mentioned, talking to property owners and being prepared early. Yeah, definitely. I think, uh, well, I know the summer of the country I'll be in, it'll be the south-facing slopes and, uh, you know, down the gullies, I think, because everything else is going to be burnt off unless we get some shower rain. So, uh, yes, certainly going to be certainly interesting couple of weeks, but um, we will soon find out. So... (laughs) Very good. Well, mate, thank you very much for your time. I uh, I really do appreciate you opening up and, and sharing your information. You know, for someone your age, you've you've definitely done a bit. Um, you've obviously had a great grounding, a great growing up, and and you know, credit to your old boy. Um, you know, he's made one hell of a hunter out of you and your brother. So, mate, congratulations on on what you've achieved so far. Thank you very much, Craig. I really appreciate it. And um, it's honestly been a pleasure getting on and talking to you and hope to do it again someday soon and catch up. So all the best for the rut. And, um, yeah, thanks again. Yeah, cheers, mate. And um, I'll, uh, I'll probably catch up with your brother down at the expo. I know you can't, unfortunately can't get Definitely. down there. So, and uh, we might have to tick a few, tickle a few of these chittle and uh, samba in the yeah. woods, I think. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. Definitely. Awesome, mate. Well, once again, thank you for your time. Too easy. Thanks, Craig. Good on you, Aiden. Cheers, mate. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening to the Hunting Camp Down Under podcast. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Hunting Camp Down Under. Send me a direct message with any general questions or further information on any of the topics that were discussed during the podcast. Or if you have a great story to tell and would like to share it, be sure to hit me up. I'd love to have you on the podcast. You can also email me at huntingcampdownunder at gmail.com. That's it from me this week. May the hunting gods be with you on your next adventure. Bye for now.